Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Philip Roscoe about how to build a stock exchange, the past, present, and future of finance. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so this um, is an incredible book. Uh, it's both um, a sort of almost a kind of autobiography um, and also a history, but also a kind of serious uh, sociological consideration um, of really where we are in terms of finance and society, uh, both in Britain, but also more globally. And, and I'm fascinated by where you started really with the book. At, at the front end, you make a, a, a reference to the fact that on the one hand, this was a podcast series, but also throughout the book, you're, you're kind of telling the story of your own relationship uh, with finance as well. So, so where did the kind of uh, idea or the starting point for the book come from? Well, I, I think we've got to go back a little bit to um, the research that underpinned it. I mean, we'll talk about this in more detail, I guess, but the, the narrative that really brings the book along is the story of these two markets that were founded in London in the in the mid 1990s um, and um, I knew them when I was when I was a youngster when I was newly graduated I got a job as a, a stocks and shares journalist and I and I knew these markets and I knew the characters in them um, and I didn't kind of think anything of it other than it was interesting enough to do a PhD in a related area. And I became a scholar of the social studies of finance. But um, looking back, I, I sort of came to recognize that this was a, you know, a very unusual little local happening in London, something very distinctively British about this and distinctively kind of late, late 90s and, and that it was it was over and it wasn't going to be repeated. And I asked the Levy Hume Trust very nicely for some money and they gave me some and I went off and I was able to talk to these these people and do the research and try and um, collect oral histories and do their stories. Uh, and um, at some point I, I produced a, a, a narrative account um, and some journal papers and so forth. And at some point I decided that there was just too much, too much detail, too much of interest. You know, some of it's quite funny, um, I hope. And um, I had to go uh, uh, recording a podcast series that eventually turned into turned into a book. I mean, the, the podcast was interesting. I thought it would be a, a challenge to learn how to, to do it. And I don't know if you've ever tried editing and, and all of that kind of thing, but it's a, it's a particular skill set, shall we say. And, and you know, maybe it wasn't one that I, I flourished at, but I made, a, I made a go of it and then eventually um, sat down to, to, um, to produce the book. And, and it, very happily, the editor of the book, Paul Stevens at Bristol University Press, had been a listener of the podcast and it all came about very serendipitously. I mean, you flagged um, so many things I, I want to sort of pick up on and get into more more detail about, indeed, as, as the book does. But what, one thing the book does quite early on is, is really kind of stake out um, how this matters. And I was particularly kind of fascinated by quite early on, you, you really try and get to grips across a couple of chapters, actually, about why we should care about finance, 
one, there's that kind of big question about, well, why should we care about finance? But also you kind of show the power of finance vis-a-vis politicians, nation states, the way that it's shaped, you know, the kind of physical reality of, of cities. And, and all this goes on quite early on in the book. So I'm intrigued by this idea of why should we care about finance? So uh, I think, I mean, you, you know, we should be careful of, of big explanations of, of anything. But if we wanted to go for a grand theory of the trouble we're in right now, finance would be a good place to start. It seems to me that that you can you can make a plausible case for 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 finance in general and more particularly the kind of nexus of relations around around capital investment um, and and the stock market uh, as one of the the central drivers for you know inequality and, and um, environmental degradation and gig work and all of these these kind of things you know we ask ourselves why are our our, our super super billionaires so wealthy they're they're shareholder wealthy right they're not wealthy because they've they've uh, commandeered the world's oil like a previous generation of of, of robber barons they've got rich because of because of the stock markets and it seems to me that these are absolutely pivotal um, uh, institutions in in understanding the, the, the shape of the world and the, and the state that that we're in but as a scholar interested in in science technology type perspectives and the social studies of finance I always find I mean I have a lot of sympathy for for explanations about uh, you know kind of capital and rentiership and so forth and I think they're broadly correct but I don't find that they're they they do much in the way of explanation you know I, I always feel that we should dive down into the the nitty-gritty of, of all of this and I, and I think something else as well that that you know if we talk about uh, about capital or financialization um, or assetization or all of these kind of things in in two broad brush terms we run the risk of of writing a kind of history where finance really is all conquering and all knowing um, and 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 kind of a, a, a amazing and has all these superpowers and actually when you get to grips with the empirical history of these these institutions they're you know they're human they're chaotic um, they're sometimes you, you know uh, almost incredible there are there are there are there are good people, there are bad people, you know, there are, there are villains and all, all sorts of things. And, and the one thing that finance seems to have been able to do very well is to tell a story about itself and about its importance. Um, and it's exactly this that gives it the, the status uh, 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 that it has in in contemporary society, where you know cities are shaped and and governments quake and and all of these kind of thing, and I think that that how the way that you deal with that is by is by kind of you know satir- satirizing it, telling other sorts of stories, and and nibbling away at it, and and in a way that's what the book is an attempt to do. I mean. You mentioned people, and, and it, I think it's it's probably not quite right to sort of contrast uh, social studies of finance versus a kind of um, kings and queens almost kind of, or you know, in the case of the city, probably a kings only. Kings only, uh, yes. Um, of of the history of um, of the of stock exchange in in London and, and elsewhere, but I think bringing people in is really really crucial, actually, both in terms of the kind of. Um, story that the book uh, tells, but also in terms of, as you've mentioned, reminding us that these are not kind of 
inexorable, all-powerful, uh, unseen, invisible hand forces. Actually, there are, there are people involved. And I wonder, actually, if we could get a sense of kind of who are we actually talking about? What what kind of people um, uh, and, and what kind of jobs um, are, are people doing in the London Stock Exchange? And I suppose, um, how has that kind of changed over time? So... Again, we you know we we have to be specific here, don't we? That's the that's the point because not everyone is a is a Wolf of Wall Street or a, a, a you know um, a Michael Lewis type um, um, uh, human piranha or or a, a master of the universe or, or or what have you. You know, many people are doing quite banal and ordinary jobs, and this the story of the London markets really kind of picks up in the. Uh, sort of in the late sixties, early seventies, where it's it's a world that is in, it's entirely unrecognisable from the 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 contemporary world of finance. You have um, a world that's entirely male, that's um, very kind of hidebound socially, culturally, in terms of in terms of dress and and all of this kind of thing. That is meeting, you know, physically up to three thousand different uh, individuals in the same place in the Great Hall of the London Stock Exchange to trade face by face, to face to face, to wander around, um, uh, you know, the pitches, which are these kind of chalkboards with numbers uh, uh, written on them, that have been set up by the various traders who are called jobbers. And um, to buy, buying and selling stocks face to face, and 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 that's a set of you know skills that it, it's very very it's very very specialised. It, it requires remarkable mental arithmetic. Um, it requires sort of remarkable powers of memory and knowing who's who in the social hierarchy and all the rest of it. You learnt it over a, a career's apprenticeship. But it, at the same time, it's it's strangely meritocratic. You know, you didn't have to be the son of uh, of um, a member of the House of Lords in order to to get a job and prosper on the floor of the London Stock Exchange, and that then transforms over the course of the years and the and the story that the the, the, the book tells. And we could go into that, but it starts with this this you know this this man's world um these figures these jobbers trading training with each other doing apprenticeships learning how to look after look after the money for the partners um and and, and so forth an entirely different kind of world i mean as with many things about contemporary british society what one of the useful things is to look back at the 80s and there are various reforms that the government makes but also there's the impact of uh, various uh, technological developments in, in the 1980s and, and onwards that really, I, I suppose, you know, on the one hand transform, but in some ways kind of shatter and destroy that uh, gentlemanly, seemingly kind of meritocratic um, moment for the stock exchange in London. So, so what happens in the 80s? What is this, um, as the book describes it, and as, you know, listeners might be aware of, what is this moment of the kind of big bang that happens in London? Well, it's, it, it's, it's quite remarkable. And, and to put it in the context, you know, you have, to, you have to look slightly back to the early 80s where the stock market was really struggling, where it was an impoverished profession. So there's a character who pops up throughout the book, um, uh, Brian Winterflood, um, who came in his later days to be one of the 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 the, the sort of best known um, uh, figures for small company trading in the in the city, and he he began life as this 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 
apprentice. He he worked his way up. He had this this nasty senior partner who tells him in no uncertain and very obscene terms to watch how he trades and 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 so forth. And and Winterflood told me this story about uh, how he uh, he he met one of his um, colleagues. Uh, they all had second jobs. Winterflood and his wife ran a secondhand goods shop in in uh, in in, in um, Floods Lane somewhere in um, East East London. And um, he met one of his colleagues selling carpet squares. Winterflood said, oh, not, you know, not even whole carpets, just carpet squares. So these guys were, they were broke, right? And by the end of the, the uh, 1990s, I guess, um, Winterflood is, you know, rumoured to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds. He, 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 he rings the, the, um, the stock exchange bell when he retires. You know, he's kind of a celebrity. There's another firm I talk about, uh, S&J Jenkins, which is the smallest of all the jobbing firms, the market-making firms in the stock exchange. Just just. Two, two, three partners and, and a couple of clerks and what have you, um, and they made on the morning of of the um, uh, British gas flotation, no, British telecom flotation. Sorry, the first of the big flotations. They made five million. They made one million pounds in five minutes trading. You know, it's completely transformed. And at the back of this is a whole kind of package of structural upheavals and reforms across the city. You mentioned Big Bang, but Big Bang is really only just kind of a moment um, in October 1986 in a much in a much longer trajectory of the city being opened up to overseas competition, exchange controls being removed, um, the Americans, the Japanese, the Australians all coming to buy a piece of the the London Stock Exchange, buying people like like Winterflood and John Jenkins, another one of the protagonists, buying them out of their uh, out of their partnerships. Um, changing to a kind of corporate risk uh, culture, letting the old timers go, getting in university educated uh, youngsters and and material as well, changing the rules of trade and changing to trade on computer screens. And all of this happened on this one on this one day. And it's this is quite extraordinary kind of transformation because the the structure of the of, of trading in the city and so forth that I just described was so bound up with itself that as soon as you pulled one of the one of the bits out, if you took away exchange controls, for example, then the whole thing just 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 fell apart. So you see in the space of um, literally three or four years, a transformation from a very staid, careful, impoverished partnership model to um, a, a, a very local as well, very national at least, to a, a globally owned corporate kind of investment bank type set up, um, hiring youngsters, paying them bonuses, trading on screens, you know, taking risk and, and all the rest of it. And this lasted just one year. It's just one year until October 1987, which is the legendary Black Monday, where where um, stocks in in Wall Street and London suffered their worst one-off falls ever, and the whole thing just kind of kind of fell apart. Um, and that's really the end of the 80s experiment in uh, in in financial markets. Extraordinary total social transformations. One thing, I mean, you, you've alluded to this with the impact of, of things like um, the end of exchange controls and, and the ability of, of foreign money to uh, come in more easily. But, but one thing um, maybe within that story that's important is, is whose money are we actually talking about? 
Um, and I was struck actually in that this sort of comes in uh, later on in the book, but I was struck by as much as a transformation in um, the technologies, the work cultures, uh, the amount of, of money around uh, the stock exchange in, in, in this period, but also there's a transformation of whose money it is. And, you know, you've mentioned things like privatizations and the idea of a, I guess, a kind of shareholding society oh. that comes up in, in, in the 80s. So, yeah, like who, whose cash is, is actually being invested? Well, there's a uh, this sudden creation, or perhaps recreation is a better word. It's not an entirely new phenomenon, but of the of the private investor. And again, this is part of um, part of the uh, um, Thatcher's Thatcher's reform. So you are too young, Professor O'Brien, but I just <laughs> about remember these adverts on the television first time around. This very famous Tell Sid campaign. Um, and, and I, I find it on YouTube and, and show it to students. And, you, you know, you have this kind of archetypal British country village and there's a postman on a bicycle and a bus and an old lady shopping and whatever in a variety of regional accents. And um, and it's if you, see, if you see Sid, tell him, you know, if you see Sid, tell him these new British gas shares, oh, yeah, anyone can do it. All the rest. And there were, there were newspaper adverts, you know, tell Sid before it's too late and all this kind of thing. And what's interesting is you watch the TV advert to the end and it goes to the the telephone number and whatever, and this cut glass voice says, if you would like to subscribe to the British ass, then telephone Rothschilds on. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a, a facade. The established order is exactly the same. But there's this big flood of private money into the, uh, into, into the markets, and that really is what powers the, powers the froth. But this also, this is part of a bigger set of social transformations around, you know, um, how do we fund our retirement, you know, uh, it, as collective schemes um, provided um, by employers and so forth slowly went out of out of fashion then people become encouraged to save up for their own retirement or put money into um the big investment funds and uh, uh, and so forth there's a lot of managed money as well but it's all it's all private individuals money and it's the money recycled that's come into the, into the um people's hands through you, you know the, the various policies of the, of the 1980s i mean you mentioned Black Monday, um, where are we? Five, six years later, we get Black Wednesday um, towards the end um, of, of the uh, 90s and into the 2000s. We, we've got another boom and, and another bust. And, and I'm fascinated to know, I suppose, what uh, these different kind of moments tell us about the resilience of uh, the stock exchange in London. One of the things that uh, comes through in the book is, is the dot-com boom is, is really important for you personally. You're writing, you know, you're sort of working as a journalist. You're, you're um, dare I say, it, kind of part of the problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you can say that. Very, very, it's a young, plump and naive me, you know, eating expensive lunches and and, 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 and writing them up for the, um, for, for the, the, the brokers, for sure. So, so what, what's going on during uh, the dot-com boom? How are things, you know, sort of, again, further transformed? But what are the continuities there too? I, I think, what, you know, one of the things that, that um, booms do to put uh, our STS hats back on again for a moment is that they pay for infrastructure. Um, and, you know, the, the dot-com boom, 
paid for a lot of investment in new kinds of trading technologies and so forth. And these these persisted. So the things that we know today, the Charles Schwab's and the uh, and the brokers like that, they're all they're all creations of of dot com money, um, and their their more recent incarnations just kind of follow that on you know so there there are things that happen like that 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 give a bit more resilience to the to the to the boom in answer to your first question in other words you know it is just um it is a good old-fashioned speculative boom there's there's one in rubber at the turn of the century there's one in um uh dog i think there's one in the 20s i can't i don't forget well there's the huge the huge boom in the 20s which is just a general boom and then the big the big collapse there's a boom in dog tracks of all things just after after the war i mean you just get you know speculative excitement and people's money's pours in and uh, 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 and, and prices go up and the um the the market offix that i talk about in quite a lot of detail which is formed from sj jenkins previously mentioned uh is is pay is funded entirely by dot-com money and, and and eventually it doesn't survive at least in that iteration but uh, so we have these kind of you know rushes of excitement that then fund developments and change the way that uh, that that uh, markets work and and of course vice versa as well the technology shape reshapes practices and and so forth i mean but part of what is going on with the story of the dot com boom is is a kind of classic um uh, belief really in in the value of uh, companies organizations that are essentially kind of worthless um, but the other thing that's going on with london and, and in the long history of the london stock exchange but also um, is important to the book is trading real things um, actual commodities and the, the book treats this in, in several different ways but the two i'll i'll pick out that i think are, are most important is one is the importance of commodity markets in general to stock exchanges. Uh, but two is, is is the kind of the Britishness and particularly uh, the importance of the British Empire. And maybe we'll do those two questions in turn. So the first thing is, why do commodities matter to stock exchanges? I think the commodity, well, I mean, I'm going to be a little bit pedantic and say that commodity exchanges are not quite the same as, as stock exchanges. But the trade in commodities seems to lead to the evolution of, of uh, financial exchanges. And the reason is that the reason for that is is uh, so. For example, in the case of Chicago, which we talk about in a little bit of detail in in, in the book. Um, Agricultural commodities are, are difficult to move around. You know, they're they're heavy and they go off and they they moo and all of these these kind of things. Um, and so they very quickly evolve into abstractions of different different kinds. Um, and so you see, you know, you can kind of trace a genealogy of 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 commodity markets and the the associated. Um, uh, practices and legalities and contracts that's the word I'm, I'm looking for you know right back to the the um, uh, antebellum America the the, the the slave trade the um, import of cotton to Liverpool and so forth you can kind of follow these 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 lines through that that financial markets are somehow connected to the trade um, in, in real things 
and and helping to accelerate that you know to kind of dematerialize this trade in real things because it's it's bulky it's risky it's dangerous you know in the case of the slaving it's it's just abhorrent and it you know everybody hated it even even at the time um and there's much more money to be made if if you can somehow get away from all of that and sanitize it, clean it up, and start trading in contracts. You in Chicago, the um, the, the traders invented these things called two arrive contracts. And the, the beauty of a two arrive contract is that it never has to arrive. You know, you can offset one against against the other, and then you have a kind of legal history of of the squabbles for legitimacy ar- around this that are eventually settled in the early twentieth century with a judicial ruling that speculation is a good and positive thing for for, for society so the the bones of of um of financial speculation and financial instruments is often is often found in in very very material things you can say the same i think even about the 2008 credit crisis it, you know if you wish that it's this this urge to to kind of dematerialize and speed up transactions in in quite obdurate credit instruments in this case mortgages which are attached to actual houses that was your first question your second yeah. one was empire well, well that, so that history that you've outlined is, is really the front end of the book and then this question of empire and the imperial legacy and and i suppose i mean we, we have to be careful talking about the kind of uniqueness of of britain and, and stuff like this and um I, th- I think you know it's important to be cautious about that but it is fascinating towards the end of the book where you're talking about precisely those organizations companies that are able to do things like you know be mining concerns or you know control access to particular commodities rather than as you say the commodities themselves and here i think there is a kind of both a legacy of empire and a particularly british story so where does empire i suppose kind of fit in to the book's analysis um uh, I think the, you know, there's a there's a theme running through this. I, I I really tried not to say, you know, that finance is is always already awful because that's in a way the point. It's not. It's 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 because that would be to give it unfair efficacy. You know, it it is chaotic and it is human and all of these kind of things that we discussed. But there is something in in the bones of finance that is about e- exploiting and and extracting. Um, and that really comes to the fore in in these kind of imperial or post imperial escapades. Um, so I, I talk about the the um, the rubber boom um, in in um, Shanghai. The Shanghai Stock Exchange is a, is set up by a bunch of expat Europeans, mostly Brits, I think, on on largely European lines. It runs out of a out of a hotel in Shanghai, um, and they they there's a craze for financing rubber plantations because the returns on the rubber plantations were were so good. Of course, the reason the returns on the the rubber plantations were so good is because they were staffed by um, effectively slave labour from another part of the British Empire, and they they employed uh, largely British techniques of industrial production and so forth to streamline the outputs. Fantastically profitable, but the 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 interesting thing is that those kind of structures of financing that that were being used in um, in the the, the 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 rubber excitement, um, uh, just yes. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> are exactly the same as those that I saw being used during the during the dot com era. Um, and then, uh, in while I was working as a journalist, I was also spent a lot of time covering mining corporations, and you know this this idea that it is entirely legitimate for British investors to put up money to fund um, exploration strategies in um, in you know. Uh, Africa, the African subcontinent, or um, India, or whatever it might be, and should should they find something because it's their capital that's been at risk, they're the ones that are going to be paid out. Um, the same kind of, you know, the same kind of thinking, the same kind of extraction, the same kind of sets of of um, technologies um, of imagining. Um, using Paul Gilbert's work here particularly of imagining these places as somehow kind of um, still still part of a, a, a of a, a, a anglo-saxon rule book um, and there to be to be profited from I was taken by your your sort of comments about I suppose you know um, not giving too much to finance um, and also finding I suppose critical perspectives that don't over-determine the importance of finance. But at the same time, you've also talked about the way that, you know, finance um, strikes fear into uh, governments. You know, I mean, in the UK, we saw last year um, an extended discussion of the markets not liking the Prime Minister I mean, for very good reasons. Um, <laughs> but not the, not the same reasons that we have, unfortunately. Yeah, no, probably probably not, not the same reason. Um, and this sense of, uh, I, I guess... Is finance a problem? Should we be doing things differently? What actually could we be doing thing, uh, doing differently? And indeed, is there that kind of risk, as, as you see in a lot of, I suppose, kind of um, press coverage, that ultimately the stock exchange in London and the associated financial sector are almost kind of impossible to control, um, impossible to kind of um, bring to heel, and we just kind of, you know, have to find ways to live with the monster, as it were. What what could we be doing uh, differently? I, I I mean to to answer the first part of your question is is it a problem? You know, you know I th- I think it is. I mean I uh, like everybody else in the country. I thought the the mini budget was was just crazy, but. Um... But it is an issue. Let us assume for a moment that the, that, that particular um, prime minister and her cabinet had been elected by a representative cohort of, of you know the, the population in a in a general election or something like that on on a platform to do what they wanted to do. And the financial markets effectively said, no, you can't do that. I think that's quite problematic. I think the more telling example actually is is going back to 2010 when Gordon Brown um, narrowly lost the election and um, the uh, Conservative Lib Dem um, alliance was formed. And as far as I could tell, that was pretty much not what anyone anyone had voted for. Um, particularly not anyone who had voted Lib Dem. And it was it was clearly in order to keep the markets happy. And we have to keep the markets happy because we owe them such a lot of money and blah, 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 blah. So it's a very, you know, it's a very difficult situation when you're chronically overdrawn and you're in thrall to your to your bank manager at any at any kind of uh, of level, even the national one. So that, you know, that that is difficult, isn't it? And I think that we would do very well if we could somehow 
get finance back into its into its box as it were as as a sort of service industry that's job is to to finance industry to finance um uh to finance nations in a constructive way and so forth because this is you know this is one of the the stories that finance finance tells is that because it's been financing industry from the beginning and blah 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 therefore it's allowed a share of the process the 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 you know it's allowed returns on investments and and these expectations are legitimate but in fact far more money has been flowing out of stock markets into the pockets of investors than has been coming in for a number of years. And it's not even clear that this story about financing um, financing industry is is especially true. I mean, you know, the, the titans of, of, of tech and not now are not the ones that were financed by small investors in, in the late 1990s in London, not by, not by any means. So, you know, I, I think some kind of some kind of honesty about and clarity about the 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 importance and role of these um, institutions in our in our polity would be would be really very helpful. Um, and I, I think as well, you, you know, the, the the end of the book is this kind of masterclass in in equivocation. One of my one of my colleagues said it's rather like you know you give the you give the the seminar and you say so we don't want any more financial markets ever again whatever you know that's it bang and then over coffee you go well actually <clears throat> you know maybe we could find a place for and 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 you know I, I'm not conv- I, I I'm not convinced that we that we somehow sort of need to ban ban finance or um, that we that there's no place for sophisticated market arrangements to do specific tasks or any of these or these kind of things but it would requires a, a rethinking of the the status of these institutions and the um a, a, and and the kind of narratives that we that we tell about them and i'm, I'm afraid there's a sort of donald trump situation that the the the, the, the badder and brusker that finance seems to get the more you know the more everyone wants a, wants a piece of it hence the success of 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 um, of cautionary tales such as liars poker and all the others over over the years. I mean that point you make about kind of knowing the history, um, so we can at least have honest conversations about where finance has come from and and, and what its contemporary role should be. I, I think is something the book does incredibly well and, and and is one of the kind of key contributions the book makes. There's all different kinds of things we, we could have talked about. Um, I mean, I, I urge people to, to, to buy the book, to, to, to read the book. Um, and it, it strikes me that in some ways the book almost feels like the kind of uh, the closing or, or, or the end of a research agenda as much as it sets up important new questions for social studies of finance in particular, but, but, but actually um, in more generally for historians, for social scientists as well. And I'm intrigued by what you do next after a book like this. Are you thinking in terms of a, of, of a sort of a break with, with this area of research? Or are you thinking that this is just the start of, you know, perhaps, um, you know, a, a more detailed um, exploration? of possibly, you know, comparative stock exchanges, thinking about doing more work on, um, 
as, as we mentioned, you know, the Chicago stuff that opens the book in comparison with London, um, or yeah, are, are you thinking it's time for something else? I think I think I've had enough of stock markets for a little while. Um, a, a, a cognate project that I'd I'd really like to pursue if I can get myself together and get the resources. Um, you may have noticed coming to a place near you somewhere, a Freeport in the UK. I don't, don't know if you've followed any of this. Um, these are these are special economic zones, you know, low regulation tax free places, and they were they were floated by um, uh, uh, Mr. Sunak in um, a 2016 kind of brief paper. It's just a few pages long. I suspect it was it was written by the intern. You know, I mean, it was really kind of high level high level stuff about the benefits these might might bring. And then post Brexit, this kind of became a bit of policy. And now, of course, uh, Mr. Sunak is Prime Minister Sunak, and and so this is a significant agenda. These are popping up all over the place. In Scotland, we've got um, green free ports, which is a a, 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 a sort of um, collective um, hash up between the, the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster Parliament uh, based on a disagreement about devolved rights to do do certain things. But the long and short of it is, you know, right near us in St Andrews, around the Forth of Firth, Edinburgh, Burnt Island, the Rossive Docks, that kind of ex industrial area. We're gonna have um uh, we're gonna have a freeport is gonna attract six and a half billion of private investment, um, which I presume will be all all offshore, you know, so there's clearly links to concerns about finance and so forth there. It's gonna employ you know, sixty thousand people, and this, and and, I, and and these things are going to really significantly change the the uh, the um, economic shape if they're successful. They'll change the economic shape of the the nation. You know, you have to think that Canary Wharf was originally a special economic zone in order to get it built. Dubai is a special economic zone. Um, Shenzhen. The industrial city uh, in China is a special economic zone. These things are not trivial. So I would like to do something about that. But at the moment, it is really an intuition that I'm trying to pursue rather than a developed research agenda. So suggestions on a postcard, please. 